Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have several other podcasts out there, from John to Justin, Canada's Great War, Coast to Coast, and Pucks and Cups, available on all podcast platforms. And every dollar you give keeps it all going, and I truly appreciate it, and I'll thank you on the air and throughout my social media, as well as at the end of every episode. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history, and my username is Bairdo37. You can also find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash CanadianHistoryX. And if you want, you can find transcripts of every episode I've ever done. That's almost 700 episodes. Just go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. All of these links are also in my show notes. Since before Canada was ever a country, there has been black immigration to it. From the individuals who were forced to work as slaves in Upper Canada, to the loyalists who settled in places like Nova Scotia, those who came to Canada and their descendants would shape Canada in many extraordinary ways. During the War of 1812, about 2,000 black refugees came to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, while about 800 black Americans settled in Vancouver Island between 1858 and 1860. When slaves were fleeing the United States, over 30,000 of them came to Canada over the first half of the 19th century, settling in Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. This episode isn't about all black immigration, though, but a specific period of immigration, 1908 to 1911. It was during that time when the American South was implementing strict Jim Crow laws, Lynching was very common and many black Americans were looking to get away from America and settle in Canada. In Oklahoma, which was awarded statehood in 1907, racial segregation came in the same year. Originally, there was no call for strict segregation in the Oklahoma Constitution out of fear that President Roosevelt would veto the document. Once the document was approved, the first legislature of Oklahoma wrote segregation into law with the state's first Senate bill. Interracial schools, marriages, and public facilities were banned completely. A total of 540 railroad depots in the state had to be altered with new separate waiting rooms for blacks and whites, and in 1915, the state would become the first in the United States to segregate public pay telephone booths. Lynching was not uncommon either. Between 1885 and 1930, there would be 50 lynchings of black people in the state. Throughout the United States, Focusing typically in the South, though, 4,745 people would be lynched from 1882 to 1964, and 72.7% were black. A total of 73% of all lynchings took place in the American South. The period of black immigration into the Canadian prairies covers those brief years, with over 1,500 coming into the prairies to set up block settlements in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Obadiah Bowen would say of his family's decision to move in the changing climate of Oklahoma for blacks, stating, quote, When Oklahoma became a state in 1907, things began getting worse for our people. So my father, always ambitious and proud, wanted to go where every man was accepted on his merit and demerit, regardless of race, color, or creed. So in the summer of 1909, we moved to Canada, end quote. 
In the Chicago Defender, a letter was published with the headline of Land of No Lynchers, No Snakes, and No Jim Crow Laws. The author would write, quote, This is a fine country where people get equal rights in every business or pursuit. Those that have come are doing well. They stand the cold as well as anyone else. End quote. Most of the immigrants came out in large groups, sometimes with men migrating first and then bringing their families after they were established. In 1909, a group of 160 African-American homesteaders left Oklahoma and Texas for the government promise of land to homestead. Leaving the racist conditions that caused extreme discrimination of their rights, the settlers hoped to find something better in Alberta, and they would found several communities. This group of settlers would settle in Amber Valley, Alberta, and they were led by Parson Harrison Sneed, a clergyman and mason, as well as Willis Reese Bowen, who organized the original five families to settle in the area. Sneed had come out to the land north of Edmonton to scout it out, and another person who came out was Jefferson Edwards. He would say years later, quote, It was good land, good for wheat and mixed farming, so I wanted to investigate it. Also, some colored folks had already taken up a homestead there. I guess we were just like other people. Take a Frenchman. If a Frenchman settles in a place, other Frenchmen will settle with him. If a Ukrainian locates in a place, then the Ukrainians move in. I guess that's the way it was with us. End quote. In March 1910, border agents recorded 36 heads of black families coming into Alberta and Saskatchewan, showing the growing number of black families that would be settling in the provinces. Traveling from Oklahoma involved multiple train trips, with some taking wagons and carts from the United States as they got closer to Canada. For those coming to Amber Valley, the travelers had to build three bridges to cross creeks north of Edmonton. The settlers brought everything they owned, including things that would not be useful. One settler brought a cotton gin believing he could grow cotton in Alberta. When he realized that this was not possible, the cotton gin became a centerpiece on his dining room table. When the Amber Valley group made their way to Canada, the Northern News reported the following, quote, A bunch of colored folk accompanied by their families and household goods came in from Edmonton last week. We understand it is their intention to locate somewhere in the vicinity, end quote. At first, living was difficult and the harsh winter weather of Alberta was not an easy adjustment for the settlers from Oklahoma. In addition to the harsh weather, the settlers had to clear and cultivate the land and build up houses from the ground up. Typically, these were log cabins and the land was mostly muskeg that had to be made ready for crops. Most of the settlers had to wait two years before they could harvest their first crops, and in addition, they had to cut their own road to the community because the province wasn't doing it for them. The settlers were tough and worked hard on the land, and 75% stayed in the area and farmed their land long enough in order to secure their homestead patents. The percentage of black settlers who remained on their land long enough for the patent was higher than the percentage of other settler groups in the prairies. In 1913, a schoolhouse was built, followed by a non-denominational church the following year. The school was named Toll School, named for Nimrod Tools, an early settler from Oklahoma to the area. In 1919, a log building was built and called the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and a two-acre cemetery was also built for the community. By the 1930s, Amber Valley became the largest community of black people in Alberta, and it would receive a post office in 1931, and the name would change from the original Pine Creek to Amber Valley. The name came at the suggestion of a local teacher who said Amber Valley matched the color of the land. At the time, 300 people lived in the community, and they even had a two-room schoolhouse for the large influx of children to the area. And while the community thrived during that time, so too did the baseball team that became famous for defeating nearly every baseball team that it faced. The team, founded in 1926 by Jefferson Edwards, was known for its flashy play. Kenny Edwards was the pitcher for the team, and the squad would be the unofficial ambassadors for Amber Valley throughout the 1930s. 
the team would travel across northern Alberta to play white teams. At the time, in the southern United States, black teams could only play against black teams. The baseball team drew big crowds wherever they went and had an intense rivalry with a team from Lac La Biche. Sid Alexander, a white seller from Boyle, would say of the team, quote, The all-time favorite team to watch was the Amber Valley ball team. They were also so enthusiastic and demonstrated fine sportsmanship. End quote. As the 1930s progressed and into the 1950s, the population of the community began to decline as more people moved to different areas of the province and into the cities. By 1968, the post office had closed and the community would progress to the point of being a ghost town. The school would eventually be demolished, but a replica would be built and currently sits at the Canadian Museum of History. And while the community of Ember Valley no longer exists, the settlers and their descendants have improved Canada in many different ways. Oliver Bowen, the grandson of a settler, would go on to become a noted engineer in Canada who designed the initial Calgary Sea Train system that is used to this day. Violet Henry King, another descendant, would become the first Canadian black female attorney. Floyd Sneed, related to settler Harrison Sneed, would go on to become the drummer for Three Dog Night. In 1908, a group of 20 black settlers came up from the United States, fleeing the extreme racism of the American South. Originally, they settled and the community was named Junkins. This name was chosen based on the alphabetical system used by the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway. And Junkins was a vice president of a consulting company of engineers for the railroad. In 1910, the first train would arrive in the area. And by 1922, Junkins was encouraging new settlers to come to the community. A colonization society was formed to help get more people to arrive. The name would eventually change as many of its residents found that its name was rather unattractive and in 1928, the decision was made to change the name. A community contest was held, and the name Wildwood was chosen. This would become the new name of the community the following year. The community is still a thriving one to this day, and the descendants of those black pioneers have made significant contributions to Canada in the past century. Now I'm going to sidetrack a bit here to talk about an interesting thing that Wildwood did in the 1980s to drum up tourism, and I like the story. Wildwood sits along Chip Lake, and it is within there we learn of the story of Dippy, the Chip Lake monster. This lake monster is a bit more recent than its siblings, the Ogopogo and the Loch Ness monster. In the 1980s, Wildwood wanted to drive up its tourism a bit, and they came up with the idea of Dippy the lake monster. Dippy has made it into the news occasionally as well. Don Smith wrote about visiting the area of Wildwood in September 1987, and he would write, quote, It's home to Dippy, the Chip Lake monster. His chipness was hiding the day we visited. End quote. At one point, there was a life-sized version of Dippy that sat on the lake, but after some locals started shooting at it, the statue was taken off the lake. But the story of Dippy and the relative of the Ogopogo continues to this day. In 1990, a municipal copper and nickel token was created to honor Dippy, and you can find some still on eBay. Dippy has also become the subject of a children's book called Into the Wilds of Chip Lake, that follows Bucky and Chippy on an adventure as they discover what friendship truly is. Another community is Campsey, which is located about 100 kilometers north of Edmonton, and it was here that a block settlement was established by black Canadian homesteaders from Oklahoma and Texas. In 1910, 12 black families came north from Oklahoma to take advantage of the land available in Saskatchewan. Several of the members of the families were former slaves or descendants of slaves. They would arrive north of Maidstone, where they settled and began to work the land. One of the men to arrive was Julius Caesar Lane, who was born a slave in Virginia and was sold as a child to live in Mississippi. In 1912, the homesteaders would build a one-room log church and they named it the Shiloh Baptist Church. 
This church will become the focal point of the community with its handmade benches and pulpit. Nearby, a cemetery will be built, and today, 37 graves of the original settlers are still found there. The church and cemetery are now a provincial heritage site. Hi, this is J.P. Bristow, host of the Russian Empire History Podcast, a podcast about the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. What do you think about when you think of Russians? Do you think of Muslims or Buddhists? Did you know that over 140 languages have some kind of official status in the Russian Federation today? Do you think that all Russians are white? The Russian Empire was born where the Slavs from the northern forests met the peoples of the steppe. Less than half the population of the empire was ethnically Russian. And even in the Russian Federation today, ethnic Russians are only slightly over 70%. The history of the Russian Empire is the history of Tatars, Jews, Bashkirs, Turkmen, Armenians, Greeks and Kazakhs, as well as Russians, and reflects its position between Europe and Asia, and a heritage that draws on many sources, as well as its history of colonialism, which is still to play out. The histories of these people are intertwined, and none of them can be fully told without each other. The Russian Empire History Podcast looks at the history of all these peoples, tracing the origins and traditions that have contributed to their modern identities. If you'd like to see the bigger picture of the biggest country on earth, join me at the Russian Empire History Podcast.com and on all good podcast platforms. Now those are just some of the communities that were formed by black immigrants coming to Canada between 1909 and 1911, but this black immigration was not looked on fondly by the federal government. Within the House of Commons, MP William Thorburn rose and spoke, stating the government was letting in too many black Americans, stating, quote, To preserve for the sons of Canada the lands they propose to give to, end quote. I won't repeat the word used at the end of the sentence, but I think you get the idea. While the door is open for black settlers under the immigration campaign of Clifford Sifton, the Minister of the Interior, to bring more settlers to the prairies, Sifton and his successor, Frank Oliver, were not happy with the African Americans coming into Canada. He had wanted European immigrants for the most part. He then sent a letter to the immigration officers in the American South to have them dissuade black farmers from coming to Canada. He would also implement clearly racist policies that created barriers to immigration, which made it more difficult for black immigrants to come to Canada. These policies included putting out warnings such as this one, quote, The American Negro may be barred on the grounds that he could not become adapted to the rigorous northern climate. End quote. Oliver would write in March 1910, quote, It is true that there is no ban put upon a man by the Immigration Department because of his nationality, but it is not the less true in the administration of the work of immigration there is a preference shown, and properly shown, to the people of our own race. End quote. A black medical doctor from Chicago named G.W. Miller was hired by the Canadian government to go to Oklahoma and speak about how those who immigrated to Canada would starve or freeze to death and that the soil was poor. During his speeches to black Americans, he would record their names, occupations, and sizes of their families. He would then write a report detailing if he dissuaded the families from going to Canada. These reports were then sent to Canada, and before long, word of his speeches spread, and it had the desired effect of preventing immigration. On July 17, 1911, Miller would write, quote, The Canadian boom is rapidly dying out as the unfavorable reports relative to Canada seem to have spread over the entire state. Everywhere I go, people say they have heard of me and of my unfavorable report of Canada. 
many want me to locate to their respective towns. End quote. Noah Butler would write to the superintendent of Canadian immigration on December 13, 1910, stating that due to state corruption, racism against African Americans, and restricted access to the court system in Oklahoma, he wanted to immigrate to Canada. He would write, quote, Concerning the colored man's opportunity in Canada as a citizen, a man's color don't hold him back. If I can get a homestead free and be in a country where I can be protected, I would like to come up there and live. End quote. In response, W.D. Scott, the superintendent, wrote back, quote, I do not think it would be in your interest to settle here. Our winter climate would not be congenial to you. It is considered in this country that colored people are not a class likely to do well on our free grant lands in the western provinces, and we are therefore not encouraging the removal of any of your people to this country. End quote. In March 1910, Bruce Walker, the Commissioner of Immigration in Winnipeg, wrote to W.D. Scott stating that J.S. Crawford, the immigration agent in Kansas City, was giving too many settler certificates to African Americans. He would write falsely that those who settled in the Amber Valley area were, quote, extremely poor, some of them destitute, have no means to go farming, are huddling together in large numbers, have little or nothing to clothe or maintain themselves with, and are altogether, in my judgment, not such a class of persons as we ought to encourage to enter the country. End quote. Crawford wrote back stating that if not for him, thousands of African Americans would have migrated to Western Canada. In the end, Crawford was transferred to New York. The Department of Immigration would work with the Canadian Pacific Railway to prevent black immigration as well. The CPR agreed to exclude African Americans from any organized tours of Alberta and Saskatchewan, to stop issuing reduced railroad rates to African Americans, and to report any government agents who encouraged black Americans to immigrate to Canada. In an effort to stop the immigration, an order in council was approved on August 12, 1911 by the cabinet of Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier. The order would ban black persons from entering into Canada for one year. This was done on the claim of, quote, the Negro race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada, end quote. The order never became law because Canada decided it did not want to tarnish relations with the United States or alienate the black Canadians who were in Canada during an election year. On October 5, 1911, the order was repealed. While the order never became law, it would lay down a clear foundation of policy for the government and its efforts to prevent black immigration. Those policies would remain in place until 1962 when they were overturned with the help of Violet King Henry, whose parents, as I mentioned, benefited from the pre-racist policies and made it to Canada. Of course, even getting into the country during that brief period of 1909 to 1911 was not easy, even if he got a certificate. The first wave of settlers had to deal with border officials who scrutinized the immigrants for anything, medical or moral, that would justify keeping them out of Canada. After rigorous medical examinations, which included looking at the livestock and children, groups would sometimes be granted entry into Canada. One child, aged five, was rejected simply because he had a broken leg. It was estimated that 40% of black immigrants were rejected at the border for medical reasons, typically trumped up by border officials. A border agent could demand that black immigrants possess $500 at the time of entry, while at the same time allowing a white immigrant to enter Canada with only $25. There were even claims of border officials receiving a bonus for every black immigrant they rejected at the border. In December of 1910, 34 black immigrants came through the entry port of White Rock, British Columbia, and then journeyed to Edmonton. Upon arriving in Edmonton, immigration officials began to investigate how the black immigrants entered through the port and how they passed the medical exams. When they were told that each migrant family had between $300 and $800, officials were still not happy. W.D. Scott would write to an official stating, quote, 
If you can discover any reason why any of the 34 from Oklahoma should be deported, take action. If you are suspicious that there are any who would not come up to the physical qualification, call in a city health officer to examine. End quote. It was not just the government that was against black immigration. The Edmonton chapter of the Imperial Order Daughters of the Empire would petition the government on March 31, 1911, stating, quote, We view with an alarm the continuous and rapid influx of Negro settlers. This immigration will have the immediate effect of discouraging white settlement in the vicinity of the Negro farms and will depreciate the value of all holdings within such areas. End quote. Racism was also seen throughout the areas that black settlers settled, with occasional racist slurs yelled when one of the black settlers was in a predominantly white community. But slurs and some discrimination was the extent of what the black settlers faced, with nearly no threats on their lives as was seen in the American South at the time. Nonetheless, the resistance to the settlers was extreme at times. The Edmonton Board of Trade would say of the influx, quote, Those Negroes who have been here some time have had a square deal and been treated as whites, but if you get a few thousand more in, conditions would much change. End quote. The Edmonton Board of Trade was one of the leaders of the opposition to black immigration and were able to attract 3,000 signatures on a petition opposing the immigration, despite Edmonton only having a population of 25,000 at the time. The United Farmers of Alberta also had a similar racist view, stating, quote, We consider Negroes undesirable as fellow citizens of the province. End quote. But there were bright stories and some big differences between Oklahoma and Alberta. Jefferson Edwards told a story of being in a bar in Athabasca, Alberta, and staring down a fight with another person in the bar. Suddenly, francophones dropped what they were doing to defend Edwards. The Ukrainians of the area of Amber Valley, who had dealt with discrimination of their own, would also work together with the black community to improve both groups' lands. The thousands of black Canadians who came to Canada in those brief years would end up having a large impact through their descendants, and today, some of those communities they established, like Wildwood, still exist, and their impact is still being felt. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at black immigration from 1909 to 1911. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at Jay Silverheels, the indigenous actor who played Tonto in the original Lone Ranger and helped push for indigenous rights. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D, Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from CBC, National Post, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, At the Plate, Canada's Historic Places, Oklahoma Historical Society, Forest, Furrows, and Faith, Place Names of Alberta, People's History of Alberta, and we heard Canada was a free country. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.